0: And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her.
1: Thank you very much for reading for us, Hilary. Please keep your Bibles open there. And as we turn to look at it together, let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this familiar Christmas story that we have just heard read from the Bible. And we pray now that you would speak to us afresh through this word today, and help us to respond rightly to Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, a few days ago, my boys and I snuggled up on the sofa and watched Shrek together, um, a great uh, Christmas film. I don't really know why it's a Christmassy film, but I always associate it with Christmas, and we tend to watch it about this time of year. Um, They're very into castles and knights and dragons at the moment, so it went down a treat. Now, many of you will know the story of Shrek. Uh, There's Princess Fiona who is trapped in a castle, in the highest room of the tallest tower, guarded by a fire-breathing dragon. And since she was a child, she has been waiting there for her Prince Charming to come and slay the dragon and to rescue her, waiting for her true love and true love's first kiss. Well, her Prince Charming does eventually come and everything seems to be going to plan as he rescues her until the moment where he pulls off his helmet and reveals himself to be a big green ogre called Shrek. Not exactly what she had been hoping for. Initially, she's disappointed, to say the least. But then through the rest of the story, she comes to realise that he is, in fact, her true love. And the one that she'd been waiting for all those years. And they have their happily ever after. Now, even if you've not seen Shrek, that story, that plot, should feel familiar somehow because the key elements of that plot line are shared by every great story that's ever been told. There is a crisis or a threat or a great need waiting to be met and then there's some great rescuer awaited and longed for. Think it through, Uh, romances are all about the crisis of loneliness or heartache And then the perfect person appears on the horizon. And the whole story is about whether he or she will come and sweep the other off their feet. Thrillers work by introducing uh, some great threat and then the idea that the great rescuer maybe might not come quite in time. That's the thing they dangle in front of you. Uh, Even horror films. I can't stand horror films. I'm a complete wuss. But they are very, very popular. Why is that? Well, even horror films they basically work on the idea that the great rescuer isn't going to come. And tragedies on the idea that the rescue never did come. Is there in the real world stories that we construct for ourselves as well. Every few years, a a politician comes along um, who sells a story that many can identify with, painting themselves as the great rescuer who can save us. Whether it's uh, years ago, Tony Blair's The Best is Yet to Come, or more recently, Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. There's a story and people buy into it and their rescuer is swept into power. Then inevitably they disappoint or fail in some way or in many ways. And people slump back into cynicism for a few more years until the next compelling story comes along. Are you beginning to recognize this? Individually, in our own personal stories, we feel great needs and we face a crisis and, and we latch on to something as our rescuer and we place all our hope in that thing or that person. We believe that marriage will rescue us from loneliness, that career success will rescue us from self doubt, that money will rescue us from insecurity, that a holiday will rescue us from weariness, that presence will rescue us from dissatisfaction, that a vaccine will rescue us from isolation. And for just about everything else, well, we have an insurance policy to cover that. In countless ways, we humans create our own stories and invent our own saviors to meet our deepest needs, to save us from life's greatest threats. Now, as you think that through, don't you find it intriguing that all the stories we tell ourselves, whether fictional or real world, contain these threads running through them. It's almost suspicious, isn't it? And might it be because all of these stories are like the shadows cast by some greater story that towers above them all. A story that stands behind every other A true story that inspires every imitation. In 21st century Britain, we have for the most part chosen to disbelieve the story of Jesus and the claims about him made in the Bible. And yet our culture continues to be haunted by belief belief in something more. And if you listen carefully, echoes of his story can be heard all around, even in Disney, perhaps especially in Disney. Over these few weeks in December, we're looking in Luke's gospel at the very start of the story of Jesus and his earthly life. And what we're going to see this morning is that it is in believing this story and the truth about Jesus that it begins to unfold that we will be truly blessed. And so come with me this morning to Luke's Gospel to discover how to be blessed this Christmas. Last week, we saw the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah in the temple, telling him that his elderly wife Elizabeth was going to have a son who would be great and go before one even greater still, preparing people for the arrival of the Lord. And this week, we come to an account that is in so many ways similar but with striking differences. This is Gabriel's second outing. Take a look at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Zechariah, it was Mary, sorry. (laughs) That would have been a a twist, wouldn't it? We are going to see a miracle this morning, but not that particular one. Um, Zechariah was an old man, but this time Gabriel goes to a young woman, a virgin not yet married. And he said, verse 28, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. You know when you get a phone call from a boss or someone who's important and um, they're all cheery and bubbly on the phone and you're kind of like, yeah, this is nice. But you're also thinking, why are you calling? You don't normally just call. This has got to be something significant. And that's maybe something of what's going on in Mary's mind at this point. Great, an angelic visit. He's saying good things to me, but really what's going on here? Verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You would, wouldn't you? Well, Gabriel realizes that despite his cheery introduction, the poor girl's terrified. I imagine he got used to having that effect on people. So he reassures her, verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. This is going to be big news and it's going to be good news. Well, here it is. Follow along from verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, another baby is to be born surrounded by great expectations. But these expectations could not be any greater. Christmas after Christmas, people come to churches like this one for carol services and hear these very words read out. And the significance of Gabriel's announcement will pass many by. And it's possible that it could pass us by here this morning as well. But to a first century Jew, these words would have sent a tingle down their spine. Those words unmistakably declared that Mary's child would be the long-awaited rescuer king. For centuries, the people of Israel had been hanging on to the promise of God that one day a descendant of David, King David, would come. King David, who had been such a mighty king in their history, but also a flawed one. And that this descendant would save God's people and rescue them and rule over them perfectly. Hundreds of years they had waited without a whisper or a word of this promise being fulfilled until this moment. And these words from the lips of the angel. Notice all the royal language there. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Last week in chapter one, verse one, we saw why Luke wrote. He wrote to document the fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus. And this here is a huge fulfillment moment. It goes right back to the promise God made to King David a thousand years before which we can read in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, where God said he would raise up one of David's offspring to sit on his throne and rule forever. It's a promise remembered in that other great carol service reading, Isaiah chapter nine, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And now we know why Luke included that detail about Joseph being a descendant of David. Because it would mean that Jesus too, even if only by adoption, would be a descendant of David. And why does Luke keep reminding us of that rather personal detail about Mary, that she's a virgin? Because Isaiah 7 had said, the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. With all these promises being fulfilled, promises being fulfilled, the pieces are falling into place. Even the name that the angel gave to him, Jesus, which literally means the Lord saves. It would be impossible to exaggerate the significance of this announcement, not just for Mary personally, but for the whole people of Israel. The nation's hopes hung on this long-awaited rescuer king, And the clear message of the angel is that Jesus would be the one they'd been waiting for all those long years. A mind-blowing promise. How would Mary respond? It's fascinating to compare the stories of Gabriel's visits to Zechariah and Mary. Mary. There's so much that is the same, but some crucial differences. And the differences stand out all the more because of everything else that is the same. Both were visited by Gabriel. Both were told not to be afraid and that they were under God's favor. Both were told they'd have a son and they were told he will be great. Both were told what to name their sons and what they would go on to do or to be. Both visits involved a promise of a conception that was biologically impossible. One because the mother was too old. The other because the mother was too young, not yet married, still a virgin. And both respond to the angel with a question. Now on Wednesday night at Small Group Central, um, at the end of our time uh, together, I asked the group to help me with my sermon for this morning. I pointed out an interesting similarity in the questions that Zechariah and Mary asked the angel. You see, both of them had just been told that their son would be of huge theological significance, either the long-promised Elijah figure, who would go before the Lord, or the long-promised king, who would himself be the Lord. Massive things. And yet the questions that Zechariah and Mary asked the angel are about biology, not theology, theology. Zechariah, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. Mary, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You see, both talking about biology rather than theology. Why is that? Now, I had some great responses from the group on Wednesday night. As Some pointed out how thoroughly human it is to first respond to the obstacles to what the angel is suggesting. Or maybe that it's natural to first wonder how something will immediately relate to you before considering its wider effects on others. Someone put it well by saying they don't really respond so much as react on impulse. I think all that must be right. But I was also very taken by this suggestion, that Luke seems to be highlighting this to make very clear the biological impossibility of what the angels promised. And that these really were two literal, supernatural conceptions. Zechariah and Mary realised that. And Luke, who by the way was himself a doctor and knew a few things about this sort of stuff. He didn't want to glide over the issue. And that might surprise some of us. Because for many, this is one of those eye-rolling moments in the Bible, isn't it? One of the things that seems so obviously implausible that people stop listening altogether and stop giving any serious thought to what the Bible teaches. And that may be how you feel at moments in the Bible like this. If that's the case, I get that. If that's you, or in case you find yourself talking to someone for whom that is true, consider this. We shouldn't dismiss what Luke says about Jesus because he begins to describe supernatural things like a virgin conception, or angels for that matter, because these things are exactly what we would expect if God himself were entering the world. In fact, they're what we would insist upon before continuing to entertain the idea any further. You see, it's a strange thing actually to dismiss the Bible's claim that Jesus is God because there are reports that there were supernatural events around his birth and life. Who would ever contemplate such a claim without supernatural things drawing attention to the fact? God coming into the world and nothing spectacular? Who would believe that? If what the Bible claims about Jesus is true, we shouldn't be surprised by dramatic signs to accompany his birth, whether it's a star moving in the sky or angelic visits or even a virgin birth. Supernatural, yes, inescapably so, And what else would you expect? How else would you expect God to reveal himself to you? So even if we don't yet believe the Bible's claims about Jesus, we shouldn't dismiss them just because his birth was surrounded by the supernatural. And that's something that Luke wants us to be very clear on. A virgin conceived. But the key difference between Zechariah and Mary, the big thing Luke wants wants us to notice is the apparent assumptions behind their questions. Zechariah asked, how can I be sure of this? Mary, how will this be? Now, they might sound similar to begin with, but consider it a little longer. Zechariah's question, how can I be sure, suggests a disbelief. I'm not sure, give me more reason to believe you. Whereas Mary's question assumes the truthfulness of the angel's promise, but asks about the mechanics of how this will happen. How will this be? Do you see, Zechariah is skeptical. Mary believes. And so the angel explains as best he can for a limited human mind in verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we said a few minutes ago. Now, it's not that Mary didn't have questions about all this. She obviously will have. We see one of them here. And it's not that questions are discouraged. They're not. And so Gabriel happily replied. But it's about the spirit behind the question. The posture of either humble inquiry or distrusting critique? Can you sense that in the questions? The theologian J.I. Packer wrote this, and it should come up on the screen. We should not abandon faith in anything God has taught us merely because we cannot solve all the problems which it raises. Our own intellectual competence is not the test and measure of divine truth. It is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding but to believe in order that we may understand. That's the spirit of Mary's question. She's like the man in Mark chapter nine who said to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And that's how each of us should respond to God's words to us. Doubts are fine, questions are welcome, but we're to approach God with a humility that assumes the truthfulness of what he tells us and from that position seeks to further understand. That sort of inquiry, he will honor. And it's perhaps for exactly that reason the angel points Mary to a further bit of evidence to reinforce her faith. Look at verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And Mary replies, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Despite what we might have expected, the great example of faith in Luke chapter one is not from the aged priest, from the young girl about to become a mum out of wedlock. Something all the more remarkable because of the personal implications it would have had for her. Zechariah's wife Elizabeth celebrated the news of her pregnancy. In verse 25, she said, The Lord has taken away my disgrace among the people. But for Mary, this wouldn't have taken away disgrace, it would have brought disgrace, terrible disgrace. Especially in that culture, being unmarried and pregnant, it was a public scandal. And who in the world would believe if she tried for a moment to explain the truth? Surely her fiance would leave her, she must have thought. And she'd be left to raise a baby on her own at a time where there was no social security. And yet she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Isn't that remarkable? Then she goes immediately to see Elizabeth. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Notice that Mary didn't wait to see whether this bump did develop. She didn't receive any physical signs in her body that she was pregnant. She upped and went straight away. She trusted the word of the angel and went to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And her faith was confirmed both by Elizabeth's bump and then what Elizabeth said to her in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and <coughs> Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. For, but why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord Should come to me. You see, before Mary has even told her anything of the angel's visit, Elizabeth confirms the angel's promise. The point of this account and her response to the angel's promise is yes, to show us that Jesus is the long awaited king, but also to show us the right response to that promise. And it's there on the lips of Elizabeth that the message is made most clear. She has the final word in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Blessed is she who believed. Blessed is a tricky word to pin down. It means some kind of mixture of deeply happy, Not at a superficial level, but deeply happy and under God's favor. That's what blessed means. Mary didn't feel blessed because of an unplanned pregnancy or the disgrace that it would bring her. There had been no happiness in contemplating the response of her fiancé to this news. But she was blessed because she believed the promise of her child's identity that God was at last remembering his promise and coming to rescue his people from all their sins and sorrows. It was in believing that promise that Mary was blessed. And the same is true for you and me. The good news the angel announced to Mary is through Luke's gospel announced to us today. The long-promised rescuer king has come and his name is Jesus. He's our king, come to rescue us from our sin and its consequences through his death on the cross in our place. He's come to remove the fear of death through his resurrection from the grave. Even if, like Princess Fiona, you don't see it at first, he is the one you've been waiting for all your life. And he's come to give you freedom and forgiveness and more than anything else, himself. And all because he's the sort of king who loves, who loves his people. So is there some great need or crisis that you face today? And what are you hoping will rescue you? What's the story that you've told yourself, the savior you're trusting in? My friends, there is only one who can rescue us from life's greatest dangers and meet our deepest needs. And he will never let you down or leave you. His name is Jesus. And this is God's promise to you. We've seen how Zechariah responded to God's promises. We've seen how Mary responded. How will you respond? To the Christians here, you will be blessed this Christmas as you gaze upon your king and allow yourself to be awed again at the wonder of his coming into our world. Allow your love for him to be kindled this Christmas And if you're not yet a Christian, or if you're not sure whether you are, this is the true story that stands behind every other. He is the savior of the world. Our sin is the great crisis that we face. And Jesus is the greater rescuer come for us. He came for you that you might be forgiven and saved. He came not because you are worthy or wise but because we need him and because he loves us. And you can be blessed today in that deepest sense happy and under God's favour as you put your faith in this long-awaited king and recognise him as your king too. For all of us, this is the message Blessing is found in believing that Jesus is the long awaited King. May we all be blessed this Christmas. Let's pray. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Heavenly Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have sent us your Son, the Lord Jesus, to save us from every sin and every sorrow. Help us to see him today and this Christmas for who he really is, our great rescuer. And help us each to be blessed as we put our trust in him and the promises about him that come to us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.